Well, good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to add my welcome to Rogers, and uh, great to be here together this morning. Uh, it's a, a great passage of scripture, one that's really important, one we need to kind of think hard about. Let's let's pray and ask God to help us as we do that together this morning. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, as we open your word together, we do so being reminded that you are a good and loving God, that you're a God who in your mercy and love uh, not only created the world, but that you, uh, as we turned our backs upon you, Father, you have sent your own son into the world in love for us, to show us your grace and your mercy because you are concerned about us, your creatures. And so, Father, as we reflect on your word this morning, remind us of your incredible goodness, your patience, your kindness, your mercy, and the hope that you give us in Jesus Christ. We do pray, Lord God, that you'd forgive us for our sins and all those things that we do that beget you, that deny you, that act contrary to what you have made clear in your word is for good. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would forgive us our sins and cleanse us. And we thank you that as we reflect on your word this morning, uh, we can know you better. Please help that to be the case. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, can I say that the, uh, the need for hope is universal? That's not telling anybody anything, is it? But the importance of future expectation uh, has been understood for a long time. And it's destructive when there's an absence of that future expectation. You know, the, the desire that everything work out well in the end is inherent in the human heart. As creatures, uh, our ability to have a future hope is one of our distinctives as human beings. Uh, it's been recognised that one of the things that makes people different from animals is a sense or a consciousness of the future. And one of the important things about knowing ourselves to be creatures in time, that is, with a a past, a present, and a future, is that it affects all of our activities. Uh, We order our activities in the present by the future. You can see it in almost every daily activity. So, for example, if you're uh, driving somewhere, you're taking a trip to Canberra, can't imagine why you'd want to do that, but if you are, uh, that's your goal, and so you take present steps to achieve that. You put petrol in the car. Uh, You consult maps if you don't exactly know where you're going. Students, for example, are dominated by their future every day, is influenced by their future goal uh, to graduate. Uh, People's present is very much determined by their understanding of the future. And we're all very much in need of hope. The good news is that it's hope that is at the very heart of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, That's why the Apostle Paul is so concerned about the Christians in Corinth. At least some in Corinth uh, were denying that those who who died would be raised to life again. And as a result, their behaviour looked like resurrection-denying behaviour. Living for now. Living for the things of this world. Indulging in sin. If Christians aren't raised from death bodily then this world is all we've got to live for. And that was precisely the error in the Corinthians' thinking. They were in danger of denying the gospel itself. How seriously do you take your faith in Jesus? Do you ever take the time to consider the implications of your beliefs? 
It seems to me that many Christians don't always consistently apply what they say they believe to their ordinary thinking about everyday life, nor to their daily behaviour. That seems to be the problem here in Corinth as well. Some believe that Christ has been raised from the dead, but then believe that we won't be. And Paul says, well, hang on a minute. Let's have a think about your logic. Because life without resurrection is futile. And so in verses 12 to 19, he plays out the hypothetical so that they and we, I think, can see the outcomes of their thinking. Have a look at it with me for a moment. Uh, Verse 12, he says, hang on. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? What are the outcomes of their thinking? Verse 13, okay, he says, well, if there is no resurrection of the dead, what does that mean? Well, it means, verse 13, not even Christ has been raised. It means our preaching is in vain or futile. And it means, verse 14, that your faith is in vain. Verse 15, not only that, it means we're misrepresenting God. And of course, verse 17, you're still in your sins. It also means that those who have already died in Christ have perished without hope. And then finally in verse 19, and that we are of all people most to be pitied. See, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then it's all meaningless, Paul says. If this world is all there is, if death places an emphatic full stop at the end of all of our strivings, if there is no resurrection, meaningless. Paul's preaching is in vain, our faith is futile, we're still in our sins, the dead have perished, and we have no hope, either for now or for the future. And if that was true, that the gospel is hollow and that Jesus is a fraud, then anyone is better off than a Christian. And Paul is saying that his whole life has been a waste of time if there is no such thing as resurrection. Listen to uh, this quote from David Pryor that you'll see on the screen. He says, Take out the resurrection of Jesus and there is nothing left on which to rest faith, only the decomposing corpse of an itinerant Jewish carpenter turned rabbi. And sobering words, aren't they, really? If there's no resurrection, then death is not just the last enemy, as verse 26 suggests, it's actually the one invincible terror. Life without resurrection would indeed be futile. We've already touched on how our future hopes shape our present actions. Well, Paul actually understands that here as well. In fact, it's his great concern. In verse 32, he quotes uh, perhaps the motto of those who have no hope in the resurrection, the motto that they live by. Have a look at there in the second part of verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, why would you live any other way if this is all that there is? If you have no hope for the future, then make the most of now. You know, sadly, that's the motto that many people today in Sydney live by. Uh, Many young people are living with a moral and personal recklessness, with little regard for the consequences of their actions to themselves or to others. For others, there's no hope beyond a comfortable and indulgent retirement, a retirement that there's no guarantee will even survive to experience. Frank Sinatra was perhaps the 
classic self-made man, successful, talented, had it all, but at his death, there was a great sense of loss. Not that there isn't always a great sense of loss at death, of course there is, but Frank's own dying words were, I'm losing. But you see, here is Paul's point in verse 20. The fact is that 2,000 years ago, a man died and was raised to life again so that we too might be raised from death to life. See, Jesus turns I'm losing into for me to die is gain. For the Christian, the other side of death is better than this side. If verse 32 is the motto of the world, then verse 20 is the motto of the church. Notice verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, in these verses, Paul draws his reader's attention to the reason for our death and the reason for our future resurrection. And that is, he speaks about two men and two destinies. Two men and two destinies. Look at what he says from verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Paul says quite plainly that death itself came by a man. He identifies that man as Adam, for he says, as in Adam, all die. Human beings are the crowning glory of God's creative work, we're told in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right at the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, he created us to enjoy a unique and wonderful relationship with him. Death is not even in the picture in Genesis 1 and 2, only life and relationship in the paradise that God had created. But the account moves sadly from the heights of God's magnificent creation to the depths of man's sinful rebellion against his creator in Genesis chapter 3. So Adam, along with Eve, sin against God, and the result is death. Not immediate death, but death is etched into the fabric of life as the penalty for sin. And so by birth, we are all essentially descendants of Adam. We're in him, Paul says. That's the terminology he uses. And therefore, inevitably, we join Adam in his sin and we are faced with the same penalty, death. All of us by birth are united to Adam and are destined for death and judgment. You see, that's only the first part of the story. Death has entered the world through a man, but there's another man, a man who brings resurrection from the dead. See verse 22? So also in Christ shall all be made alive. If the penalty of sin is death in Adam, then the point of chapter 15, verse 3, right back at the beginning of the chapter, the point it makes is that Christ died for sin. And if, the penalty, if, the, if death is the penalty of sin, then life is the evidence of no sin. And Jesus' resurrection is the evidence that not only is he without sin, 
but also that the sins of the world, our sins, that he took to the cross, have also been forgiven. Have a listen to the way that Paul puts it in his letter to the Roman church uh, in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He says there that God raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, Jesus' death dealt with our Adam problem. And his resurrection is evidence that those who are in Christ have a restored relationship with God and will in turn be raised to life as Christ has. See, Christ is the first fruits, but we will follow him. And the first fruits, we've just seen it in the kids' talk, are the guarantee of all that is to come like the first fruit to appear on the trees of what will be a great harvest. It's important to be clear about whom Paul is talking about here. When he says that all will be made alive in verse 22, he's not referring to all people everywhere in this instance. He actually qualifies those who will be made alive by identifying them as those who are in Christ, as opposed to being in Adam. Every human being lines up behind one of two men, either Adam or Christ. By virtue of birth, we all start in Adam's line, the line of sin and death. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, then we are given the opportunity to leave Adam's line and line up behind Christ, the line of forgiveness and life. Those in Christ's line are in Christ. They're the ones that Paul is referring to particularly here when he says all will be made alive. I mean, elsewhere the Bible speaks of the resurrection of all people, no matter what line they're in, but those who remain in Adam's line have not been forgiven and have not had their penalty for sin dealt with. Christ begins a new humanity and his resurrection marks the beginning of this new creation. Uh, in, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, uh, in chapter 5, verse 17, Paul makes it clear that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. If you're trusting in Christ, you're in Christ, and your destiny is wrapped up in him. You have eternal life. Now, before I move on, uh, in verses 24 through to 28, Paul actually speaks about the time of our future resurrection, uh, the end of this world, and he reminds us that even our resurrection is tied up with something much bigger. That is the coming of God's eternal kingdom. Now is the time of salvation, the Bible tells us, the time that we live in. Now is the time for the enemies of God to accept the peace that he is offering them. But the time will come when all those who stand opposed to God will have to face him as their judge. And Paul wants the Corinthians not to misunderstand nor even to deny Christ's resurrection. The gospel, is, the gospel is not the death of Jesus for our sins. It is that, plus the resurrection, his resurrection for our future life. That's the gospel. And so to further drive home his point, he asks two why questions. That is, if the dead are not raised, then first, why are people baptised on behalf of the dead? And secondly, why do I put my life on the line every day for this precise issue? And the first question has obviously caused a few problems here and there. Uh, I guess that's obvious to everybody in the room. Uh, people often miss, I think, Paul's point and get hung up on why some people seem to be getting baptised for people who have died unbaptised. 
I don't want us to get hung up on it, and so a little bit of information can be helpful. Uh, let me give you just a couple of points to try and put it into perspective, if I can. First, this is the only place in, uh, that the practice is mentioned at all in the New Testament. Uh, it doesn't mean that something mentioned twice or more is truer. It just means that something mentioned only once can't be given the same weight of importance as the central themes of Scripture. And also, if it's only mentioned once, then it's also much more likely to be misinterpreted. Uh, whereas when a particular issue is discussed often in different places and different contexts, it will be clarified by the repetition. But secondly, notice that Paul also he doesn't condemn nor endorse the practice. Why? Well, he's talking about resurrection, not baptism. Uh, and if he was endorsing it, instead of him saying, what do people mean by being baptised on behalf of the dead, then you might expect him to say, what do we mean by being baptised on behalf of the dead? It's actually more likely that he's simply pointing out the inconsistency of those who deny the final resurrection given their strange baptismal practices. And they were strange, given there's no evidence of it anywhere else in the New Testament or either in the writings of the earliest church fathers. And so whoever and whatever these people were doing, Paul is not endorsing it. For whatever reason, he seems to just be letting the fact go through to the keeper while pointing out that it's inconsistent to claim that there's no resurrection while allowing a practice that makes no sense without there being a resurrection. Well, the second question, I don't know if that's helped you at all, but let's, we'll see. Uh, the second why question Paul asks is, why do I put my life on the line every day for the resurrection if there is no resurrection? And this is the more important question. It's a compelling argument when you know how Paul lived. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, we see a catalogue of some of what Paul endured to be able to tell people of the resurrection. If you read 2 Corinthians 11, we'll see he endured numerous imprisonments, countless beatings that often left him near death. On multiple occasions, he received the 39 lashes. He was beaten with rods or was stoned. Just in the normal course of getting his message of salvation to people, he was shipwrecked. He faced danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger, in fact, wherever he went. He also speaks of toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, etc. And when he speaks of fighting wild beasts at Ephesus, we're meant to recall the images at the theatre at Ephesus where people were thrown into literal battles to the death with wild beasts. Paul was nearly mob lynched there because of his gospel preaching. Why on earth would Paul be willing to go through all of that if there was no resurrection? Paul is right. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, Paul put life and limb on the line constantly because of his unswerving belief in the resurrection. He was prepared, if necessary, to die for the gospel. My question is, are you prepared to live for the gospel? The question the New Testament writers were keen to discuss was not, is the resurrection possible? They were certain of what they'd seen. Their question was, what does it mean? That's the question that we need to ask as well. If the dead are raised, then how? That is, how should we live or respond? 
Let's just have a quick look with me from verse 32. See what he says? He says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. See, quite simply, the fact of the resurrection makes all the difference in the world. At a a very practical level, if the Corinthians lost hold of their faith in the resurrection, then why live moral lives? If, in fact, Paul condemned their immoral living earlier in this letter, the Corinthians lived the way they did because they didn't believe in their own bodily resurrection. At least that was one of the reasons. And that's why they live, as, as verse 32 suggests. If there's no resurrection, if there's no facing up to God's judgment, if this life is all there is, then why worry about a bit of immorality? It seems that some of the Corinthians were sliding back into immoral pagan lifestyles. Those who have no knowledge of God might live that way, but that's not you, Paul says. Paul is blunt. Wake up to yourselves. Stop sinning. Don't you realise that bad company corrupts good morals? Wrong thinking about God, whether about the resurrection or other, any other key doctrine, inevitably leads to wrong behaviour. And So where do you need the blunt wake-up call to stop sinning? We need it sometimes, don't we? You know what that sin is, don't you? Paul would say to each one of us here this morning, wake up. Christ died for your sin. He was raised for your eternal life. So stop sinning. When I was at uh, Bible college, the principal at the time, David Cook, used to tell every student that came to uh, college there that what we needed to be ready to do, uh, we needed to be ready to preach, pray or die at any given moment. Uh, We thought it was a joke. Uh, At first it sounds pretty ludicrous in its expectation, but it's not. And he was serious. It's exactly right when we understand our coming resurrection. Paul says in verse 31, I die every day. Again, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, it's Paul who says that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that Christ died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, what Paul is saying is that Christ's death and resurrection for us closes us off to every other option other than to live for him. It's simply how our future must shape our lives in the present. I mean, here we are with our world continuing to be in the grip of a pandemic. Hundreds of thousands of lives have been lost. The future we long for is to be free from its grip. And have a think about the sacrifices that we've made because of it, because of what we want for the future. We've sacrificed our freedoms. We've put up with isolation. We've refused to let our kids go to school. We've put our economy on hold. We've cancelled weddings. Been unable to see loved ones. We've worn masks. We've washed our hands ad nauseum. We've foregone holidays. We've put friends on hold. We've invested billions in providing an antidote. We've adjusted our lifestyles for the sake of others and for the good of our world. 
We've made sacrifices and endured the cost for the good of ourselves and others and for the future that we long for. But let's compare that. Because the greatest pandemic that this world has ever known and is still in the grip of is the sin of Adam. It infects the entire human race and the death rate is 100%. And then we face the judgment of God. See, COVID is not our biggest problem. Sin is our biggest problem. And yet we make all kinds of sacrifices for COVID, but the sacrifices we make for it will never ever be as important and needed as the sacrifices that we make for the gospel. And we can do it because we have the certainty that no matter how or when our body dies, we have the certainty that we will be raised from dead with a new eternal body. That's why Paul is willing to die every day for the salvation of others. And we're so often driven by self-protection. But Paul wants us to be driven by self-sacrifice out of love for others. Now, I was reminded again this week uh, that these are our spare bodies. Uh, Christians are going to get new bodies. Uh, these ones should be invested sacrificially in getting the message of salvation to a dying world. Jesus' death and resurrection is the antidote to our sin. Perhaps it's time for a self-imposed health check of our Christian lives. What am I really living for? What does my life look like I'm living for? Have I died to myself or am I living for myself? I lay your normal week out in front of you. Am I fleeing sin? Am I serving God's people? Am I standing for Christ under pressure at work, at school, wherever I happen to be? Am I sharing the hope of resurrection with anyone? Am I suffering if necessary for the sake of honouring Jesus? Am I increasingly depending on God for all my daily needs and relationships? See, what good does it do to believe that Christ was raised if it makes no difference to our lives every day and forever? The greatest difference, of course, is the hope it instills in us for the future. The resurrection actually fulfills that universal human need for hope. As Christ has been raised, so too will we be raised to life again on the last day. And we can be confident of our own resurrection because Christ himself has already been raised. His resurrection guarantees ours. Jesus isn't dead, he's alive right now. We serve a living saviour, not a dead one. In fact, Christianity is a personal relationship with a living Lord. Verse 20 is the Christian motto, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then verse 22, so also those in Christ shall all be made alive. <clears throat> you know, we, we rightly see death as a terrible thing. We get angry at death. We somehow know that it wasn't meant to be like this. The memories of loved ones have been evoked this past week on Remembrance Day. Lives of great promise unfulfilled by the futility of war. If there were no resurrection, we would have nothing whatsoever to offer people. But the fact is that Christ has indeed been raised. The gospel is a word of comfort and real hope in the face of death. Now, Howard Guinness uh, was the founder of the Sydney University 
Evangelical Union. He was a great Christian man who had uh, furthered the gospel of Jesus in our city by his unswerving devotion to telling people about his wonderful saviour. And when he was dying on his deathbed, a friend came to see him, and as was his custom, he asked Howard Guinness the question, are you at peace with God? And Howard Guinness's response was emphatic. No, he said, I have joy, unspeakable, and am full of glory. That's a great response in the face of death, isn't it? What confidence in his future Howard Guinness had. The Lord he had served wholeheartedly in life, he continued to trust unswervingly in the face of death. See, here is the confident hope that we have, not only for ourselves, but to offer to others. If there's no resurrection, the best we can say to someone on their deathbed is, you've had a good life. That is, of course, if they have had. But at best, it's completely hollow. Life without resurrection is futile. However, when you speak to a Christian, like Howard Guinness, on their deathbed, we don't have to point back to their past. Instead, we can say with great confidence, you've got a great life ahead. Life with the fact of resurrection is fantastic. See, here's our great hope. At death, we will never be more alive. And so when you hear that old Rod Cocking has died, could be today, remember that I'll be more alive then, I'll be more alive then than I am right now. So please keep encouraging me to sacrifice myself now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great sacrifice in sending Jesus to die for us and raising him to life again for our resurrection. Amen.